Hey everyone, it's Archie here. First off, I hope that you all had a lovely holiday. And as you're getting back in the swing of things, I've got an episode that Commons listeners are sure to enjoy. It's an episode of Canada Land that takes a look at the grocery industry, which if you've listened to our Monopoly season, you know we've taken a particular interest in. And it's looking at the issue of stock buybacks. Now, I love this episode because as a former business reporter, I can tell you that stock buybacks are a pretty hotly debated thing within the business press, but the issue never seems to break into the wider media ecosystem, even when the profit margins of Canada's big grocery chains are one of the biggest issues in the country. So without further ado, here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy. I got a tip from a listener the other week. Hi, Jesse. I'm reaching out regarding a potential story about the big three grocery chains, Loblaws, Metro, and Sobeys. For context, I work in finance in Toronto, and as part of my day, I routinely read the granular financial statements of a number of the country's public issuers. A story that has not been picked up by the mainstream press concerns the considerable size and expansion of stock buyback programs by the country's largest grocers over the past few years. To give you a sense of the gravity, over the past two years, these three companies have spent more than $3 billion buying back their shares. Listener, I read that email, and I thought to myself, so what? Cherise? You're here to tell me, so what? Okay, well, I will tell you so what, because I think it is a big so what. All right, I guess I'm ready to hear it. Uh, Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Nels Anderson, Danny Guay-Belanger, Helen Hegedus, Nicole Roddick, Robert Arnold, Kimberly Hamilton, Sampan Chatta, and Jason. My name is Jason. I listen to Canada Land because they are a small journalistic organization consistently threatened with legal action by rich and powerful institutions. And they're swearing. That's my benchmark for trust. I think Jesse is a great Canadian, even though he's never bothered to learn French. Workers at 27 different Metro grocers walked off the job Saturday. Those locations are now closed. The workers voted to reject the company's contract offer, saying they want more money in the wake of high corporate profits. Unfortunately, we are living in a time right now where working people, particularly working people at grocery stores, are just not making ends meet. Interest rates, inflation, CEO profits soaring, profits in terms of what corporations are gaining, soaring, while our members are struggling to get by. Right now, as of this recording, over 3,000 Metro workers in Ontario have been on strike for weeks trying to get an extra $2 an hour from their bosses. I try not to shop at uh, Metro grocery stores, but even if I did, I would uh, be avoiding it now. Why don't you like Metro? I can pay premium for, like, really good groceries, Or I could go to a cheapo grocery store and get value, but I don't like to buy 
crappy, low-value groceries at premium prices. <laughs> well, according to Unifor, the higher-ups at Metro have been digging their heels on this wage issue. So even though they're asking for a premium for those supposedly crappy groceries, allegedly they've been claiming that they can't go any higher on the current salary levels. Here's what I read in the Financial Post. Uh, Metro spokesperson Marie-Claude Bacon said the company was offering wage increases well above inflation, as well as improved pension and benefits, building on working conditions that are already among the highest in the industry. Sharice, I'm, you know, generally sympathetic to these workers. I mean, especially because they did do heroic labor during the pandemic and their employers, the grocers, were patting themselves on the back and puffing their chests out saying, like, we're going to give you hero pay because we're such nice guys. And then they took it away. So uh, I'm happy to heap scorn upon the grocers for that. But I don't know. There's like a lot of jobs where I feel like they should probably be paying people more money. Like, why should I be particularly mad about this? I'm not really going to get into an argument about how much these workers should get paid because there's a lot of roads you can go down there. I actually think the bigger story here is about how much Metro and the other grocery stores could afford to be paying workers. Because I've been looking into Metro's spending on this thing called stock buybacks. So companies have to declare how much they've spent on stock buybacks every year, so this information is available. And Jesse, last year, Metro spent $470 million on their own stock. In fact, the Canadian grocery companies, the biggest ones, so Loblaws, Metro, and Empire, so they've all been collectively spending billions of dollars in the past three years on stock buybacks. And they actually have kept increasing their numbers for the past several years. So, for example, in 2022, Empire spent $248 million on buybacks. For Metro, as I mentioned, it was $470 million. And for Loblaws, they spent $1.2 billion on stock. I get that, that like they've been making these appearances before Parliament and, and speaking to the public and like kind of crying poverty. This was happening at the exact same time when they were taking public heat for uh, greedflation. It was happening exactly at that point. I'm thinking of Galen Weston being in Parliament. And I would just reiterate that our profit is $1 on a $25 basket of groceries. Um, and if we invested 100% of our profits into lower prices, the price of a grocery basket would still be $24. Okay. We are working hard to lower prices for Canadians in every way that we can. And the profit that we do generate, we reinvest back in this country uh, to create more stores, more services and more jobs. But then here's this clip from Parliament in 2020. So this is when the big three grocers were brought in to answer questions about why they all stopped paying hero pay at the exact same time at the exact same day. The person speaking is Sarah Davis, who was president of Loblaws. This is at least in part because people think we have outsized profits from COVID-19. And this is a false assumption. On our April's earnings call, we announced higher profits from COVID following an unprecedented two-week customer buying binge. But we also said we would be investing $90 million per month for incremental pandemic costs, and that these costs would offset any benefits from higher sales and would last much longer. Quite simply, we have not been putting profit ahead of our people. So is this just like the same way that we might scorn them for paying their CEOs too much or their executives too much in bonuses? Is this just a question of they've got more money than they're letting on? Or, or is there something like particularly egregious or problematic about stock buybacks? Buybacks are controversial 
there are financial experts who are passionately for and against companies doing this. And there are even some experts who say buying back stock is not only a cash grab on the part of executives, but that it can lead to wage stagnation, death, and disaster. So are Canadian grocery companies making a big buck for themselves while rejecting raises and inflating food prices? Let's find out. And let's start at the beginning. What is a buyback anyway? I got in touch with Jim Stanford to help explain it to me. He's the director of Center for Future Work, which is an economic research hub. So a publicly traded corporation issues shares and it entitles you to collect a share of the dividends and so on. So what happens when a company goes onto the stock market and basically buys its own shares? What it's doing is it's taking some of its profits and it's using those to reduce the number of shares that are actually being traded on the stock market. Because when companies go out and buy their own shares back, inevitably the share price tends to rise. And this is part of the reason that companies do it. They like to reward their investors and they want to look good on the stock market. So here's an analogy that I'm hoping might work. It's like if I have a pizza and it's going to be shared between 10 people. So I've got me and nine other friends. But then some people in that group, let's say they're really hungry and kind of greedy. And just having one-tenth of a pizza just isn't going to be enough. So the group then offers to get rid of two people. They're going to pay them out, pay them the cost of a slice, say, so that they leave. Now there's only eight people left to share the pizza amongst. So each slice then is going to be bigger. Does that make sense? I mean, I appreciate you explaining it to me like I'm an eight-year-old. Genuinely, I do. And I also appreciate that you put it in food terms. Let me see if I can explain this back to you and you tell me if I got it right here. Publicly traded company, the CEO's job is to get the stock up, right? That's their job, to increase the value of the company. And they get like paid a lot extra, huge bonuses uh, if they do that, right? And my understanding before this conversation was that the way that you get your company's stock to be worth more is to increase your profits. If you do better, if the company performs better, your stock goes up. But you're telling me there's this other thing they can do, which is without actually creating anything new, if they have extra money to spend, instead of paying their workers more money, instead of expanding and opening new outlets and hiring more people, they can just buy their own stock, and now there's less stock in existence. And so the shareholders are happy because their stocks are worth more, and the CEO is happy because they just raised the stock price. Is that it? You know, that that's pretty good, Jesse. Okay, I think I got it. And you're telling me that Loblaw, at the same time that they were, they were crying poverty to Parliament, they spent $1.2 billion doing this. Yeah, exactly. So I did reach out to all three grocery chains, and Loblaws gave me a statement. They said, quote, Share buybacks are a regular practice to return capital to shareholders, which in this case includes Canada's pension plans, benefiting millions of Canadians. So it actually is an important point that pension plans do hold shares in Loblaws and other large corporations. But the basic thing is that this is completely elective spending that primarily benefits the people that already own a lot of the company. So in the example of Metro, If you take what they're spending on stocks in the year 2022, for example, and you spread that out amongst all of their Canadian workers, that could have totaled approximately $6,000 in the pocket of each of their workers that year. 
So while we're seeing Metro put up this fight over raising wages for these striking workers, you can actually see from these documents what they're really spending money on. Metro even spells out in their financial plan for the next year that they want to spend $400 million more on buybacks. And actually going through some of the information from their recent investor calls, they talk about their top three priorities for 2023. Two of them were, one, improving returns on invested capital, and the other was containing operating expenses, which I think means that they want to increase stock price while containing the cost of things like labor. Okay, so that's Metro. And as we've discussed, uh, Loblaw, they're doing the same thing. And uh, Sobeys, Empire, them too? So Empire owns Sobeys. So that's like the umbrella company. And yep, they're both doing the exact same thing. And Loblaws is kind of leading the pack here, um, spending over a billion in the past two fiscal years on stock buybacks. It actually means that they were racking up that amount in 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. So let's look at the number that Loblaws threw out what Sarah Davis said right before. They spent $90 million on PPE in one quarter. So let's just say, in theory, that they spent that same amount on each quarter for the year 2020. So that would be $360 million for that year. That would actually only be one-third of the amount that they spent on stock buybacks for that year. And that's actually also the same year workers at Dominion Grocery Stores in Newfoundland, which is owned by Loblaws, they went on strike for over 12 weeks over losing their $2 an hour pandemic hero pay. And at that time, Loblaws was refusing to negotiate. So those workers ended up having to just take the deal that they didn't want after being out of work for three months. So I'm getting the sense that they probably could have afforded to maintain that $2 an hour pay bump. I just figured, like, there's got to be a counter argument here. There has to be an argument in favor of stock buybacks and not just that it makes a lot of money for the executives and owners of these companies. Like, why not invest in your own company? Like, are, like we're going to, like, we're going to, like, not let companies buy their own stock? I mean, I don't know. Is it possible that this is, like, something that can be done legitimately? I mean, there are arguments in favor of them. They can actually raise the price of a stock that is undervalued for a company. Other economists say it's a good way to make your shareholders happy, which is something a lot of CEOs want to do. This is how the Wall Street Journal explains the main reasons why stock buybacks are attractive to companies. Seeing the company buy signals to investors that management still sees the stock as attractive. It shows they're putting some skin in the game. Second, with growing uncertainty in the market, investors are saying buybacks are what they want. Warren Buffett is famously a fan of stock buybacks. He once wrote that anyone against buybacks is an economic illiterate or a silver-tongued demagogue. Buffett thinks that when a company is doing well and they have a lot of cash on hand, and when their stock price is undervalued, buying up shares is a great strategy. And that's actually what he told Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs called me one time. He was thinking about repurchasing shares. And I said, Steve, there's just two questions. A, you have all the money that you need to develop the kind of business that you've got in your head. Uh, for the next five or ten years. Then the second question is, is your stock selling for less than it's worth? And he said, it's, oh yeah, it's selling for a lot less than it's worth. And I said, well, you've answered your own question. When the price is right, there's no easier way to make money for your shareholders. And it sounds like Apple eventually took heed of that advice. Right now, across the U.S. and Canada, stock buybacks are at an all-time high for large corporations, particularly with tech companies like Apple. Companies in the S&P 500 are on pace to buy back more than $1 trillion worth of their own stock this year. A record high. Goldman Sachs recently authorized $30 billion of planned stock buybacks. And Facebook parent Meta 
announced plans to buy $40 billion of their own stock. Data show that both institutional investors and retail investors have been selling stock in recent weeks. But here's the thing. If we were in the 1980s, these big tech companies, these grocery stores, these airlines, all of these companies that are doing buybacks wouldn't be raking in profits for their shareholders by doing this. They'd be going to jail. Until 1982, stock buybacks were largely illegal in the U.S. So share buybacks were once seen as a type of insider trading or manipulation of the stock market. But then in 1982, the Reagan administration introduced new rules, and it allowed executives permission to do these buybacks under specific rules. Like, for example, they couldn't purchase more than 25%, or they couldn't buy stock at the beginning or end of the trading day. But companies kind of went wild with it anyway and just did as much as the rules allowed. Uh, Charisse, um, I don't know if I'm going to find myself defending Reaganomics here, but there there have been like uh, steady years of boom and growth since those reforms, since I guess they uh, unrestricted stock buybacks, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe was he on to something? <laughs> maybe he was. But there is more. I spoke to William Lazenick. So he's actually a major player in this area of economics. He is a professor at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, and he's taught economics at Harvard and Columbia. And the thing about Lazenick is that he's actually spent decades looking at stock buybacks and writing books about them. So what his research is about is that buybacks are not only not helping economic growth, they're actively bad for the economy overall. He's found that by not investing in companies' development and progress, but in shareholders, it actually goes against the entire idea of what the stock market's supposed to do. And so the levels of buybacks we're seeing right now, I mean, this is like in the upper millions getting into the billions. Historically, is this something companies would do? They weren't doing it, in, at least in the United States and I doubt in Canada, before the mid-1980s in the United States. But after Ronald Reagan got elected, they adopted this rule that allows uh, actually a company like Apple, without any charge of manipulation, the last I looked to do about $4 billion a day. So basically, I call that rule, at least as it was adopted in the United States, a license to loot. That is correct, that profits are the way in which companies grow. So you have extra money because you have revenues greater than costs in a given year, and you reinvest that. I call that a retain and reinvest regime. And that's how companies grow. They don't grow by going to the stock market for more money. That's what I mean by innovation. It really is productivity growth that can be shared. But what stock buybacks are doing is actually taking money out of the company. And eventually, if they keep doing this, the business won't be good. They start squeezing their employees to get more profit to buybacks, uh, gouging their customers. And I've seen, for example, the pharmaceutical companies always make that argument in the United States where drug prices are unregulated. But we show through our research that the argument is bogus because Merck and Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson use almost all their profits, sometimes even more to just prop up their stock prices. So we pay higher drug prices in the United States so they can get higher stock prices. So in the past couple of years, the U.S. and Canada have introduced a tax on buybacks of about 1% to 2% that curb this type of spending. So in the fall of last year, Krista Freeland made it clear why she was doing that. We're taxing share buybacks. 
to make sure that large corporations pay their fair share and to encourage them to reinvest their profits in Canadian workers and in Canada. But Lasnik says that that small amount of tax doesn't go far enough. One or two percent, he says, will do nothing to actually curb buyback spending. I argue that even if you tax it at 40%, this would be like taxing cigarettes, basically. And then you should have on every uh, website, and I'm kind of semi-serious about this, of companies that still do buybacks, they have to have a banner that's going across that website all the time. It says stock buybacks kill the middle class or stock buybacks undermine innovation, uh, because that's really what it is. So, so if the politicians really want to deal with this issue seriously, they have to take it seriously. And, and a small tax on buybacks is not going to do that that job. A lot of the language about the 2% tax or even the 1% tax in the United States was, well, this is going to improve uh, the, the, the situation of workers and, uh, and, and productivity. That's, in my view, not the case. Or if you, if, if, if you really believe that's the case, then you should really set that tax at maybe 40%. Right. So your argument is that it's as bad for the economy as it is as bad as cigarettes are it's, for it's to- But Buybacks are toxic. <laughs> they're toxic <laughs> to productivity. They're toxic to wages. They're toxic to the prices that consumers pay. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the attitude around buybacks has crossed political lines. In March 2020, former President Donald Trump actually even spoke out about buybacks. I don't want to have stock buybacks. I don't want some executive saying we're going to buy 200,000 shares of stock. I want that money to be used for the workers and also for the company to keep the company going. I haven't spoken to a lot of the Republicans or Democrats on it. We discussed it and I don't like buybacks. So this is like across lines. This uh, is not tied to whether or not you're coming at this from a liberal or conservative point of view. There's there's a, a backlash against these things. I mean, historically, it's been aligned with the Democratic Party and liberalism. For example, Bernie Sanders is one of the most outspoken people about stopping buybacks. But right now, there are people across the political spectrum in favor of taxing or limiting stock buybacks. Something else that Lazenick brings up about this whole buyback controversy is how they actually might lead to real-life disasters. Take the Boeing 737 MAX incident in 2018 and 2019. There were two plane crashes involving Boeing 737 MAX passenger planes, and those crashes killed all passengers and crew on both flights, so a total of 346 people. Ultimately, the cause was due to faulty technology. But there are some experts that say there's a bigger picture. So this is journalist Peter Robison, And he wrote this book investigating the whole Max disaster. And this is him speaking on Ralph Nader's podcast. In the late 90s, a CEO named Phil Condit took charge of the company. And the prime thing it started doing was really to start buying back its own stock, which which seems like an arcane thing. But it diverts a huge portion of the company's cash directly to shareholders when in the 80s, companies were only diverting about 4% of their profits to to shareholders through buybacks. And Boeing actually took it farther. In the period they were developing the MAX, they were sending 80% of their free cash to shareholders. So what I found over that over time, Boeing moved from a company that was an, an association of engineers to a company that was ultimately financially oriented. And 
part of that strategy involved moving to lower cost labor sources. And so Boeing moved a huge, at first, about half the production of the 787 and eventually all of the production of the 787 to South Carolina. It's since had multiple problems with costs. It's taken billions of dollars in charges. It's had manufacturing defects that arose in part because of problems with the South Carolina workforce, but also because of problems with this vastly outsourced engineering and manufacturing on on that plane. That very next year, following the crash, the company significantly pulled back on their buybacks. Sharice, I have to admit, that sounded really far-fetched to me uh, when you just said it, um, but we, we took another break and I had to click around. You know, blaming a plane crash on a stock buyback in like a, a, a direct one-to-one case of this like tragedy, I wasn't buying it. But there is this like trend that lends a lot of credibility. Here's a study of the ratio of money spent on equipment in relation to how much money companies spent on buybacks. Just take a look at this chart. In 1994, major companies were dropping over $6 on physical equipment for every dollar they spent on stock buybacks. Nowadays, they're only shelling out $0.94 on new stuff for every dollar they spend buying back their own shares. Yes, and that was a study from S&P in 2020. Whatever happened in that one case, it does seem like just like buying back your own stock to pop your stock price. I mean, that just is a much more attractive concept than spending the money on like literally anything else. And that ultimately is harming everything from wages to safety to innovation, research and development. Right. Makes a lot of sense if you look at the actual financial trends that we've been talking about. There are also experts that say that a similar pattern is happening with pharmaceutical companies. And that's where research and development is really important. A lot of that criticism comes from the U.S., where the healthcare system is very different, but the examination of how buybacks could impact medical research and other innovations is important for Canadians. Here's a clip of U.S. House Representative Katie Porter grilling Richard Gonzalez, the CEO of pharmaceutical giant AbbVie, in 2022. You told us that you spent $2.5 billion for R&D, for Imbruvica, even though the drug didn't get any better. Mr. Gonzalez, how much did Abby spend on litigation and settlements from 2013 to 2018? I don't have that number off hand. We'll be happy to give it to you. Okay, $1.6 billion, $2.45 billion on R&D, $1.6 billion in litigation and settlements. What about marketing and advertising? How much does Abby spend on that? Well, marketing and advertising, we spend about $4 billion a year. Yep, $4.7 billion. How about executive compensation, 2013 to 2018? It's probably on average about $60 million a year. Try 334 on for size. Now, how much did Avi spend on stock buybacks and dividends to enrich your shareholders from 2013 to 2018? It would be about $13 billion. Stock buybacks uh, and dividends is the question, sir. Uh, dividends, I'd have to come back with that, a number for that over that period of time. $50 billion. So, Mr. Gonzalez, you're spending all this money to make sure you make money rather than spending money to invest in, develop drugs, and help patients with affordable, life-saving drugs. The idea that a company needs to maximize shareholder value above all else is actually a somewhat new concept. In fact, Lazenik said that he was there when it started to become entrenched in economic thinking. 
And this came out of business schools. I was at Harvard Business School when they brought in a guy named Michael Jensen, who was the guru of maximizing shareholder value among the professors at Harvard Business School. Let's say when I was there in 1984, by 1986, you know, everybody is talking about this. And the ones who were critical of it, most of them didn't have the background in economics, et cetera, as I did, that, that you could mount a critique. So they just went with the flow. So this Michael Jensen guy, this guy that William Lazenig knew in the 80s, he was kind of a superstar. He co-wrote one of the most widely read economic articles of all time called Theory of the Firm. And this is the article that made the case that companies prosper when their shareholders prosper alongside them. So that was foundational to this idea of maximizing shareholder value to have a successful business. And that just sort of bit has become the dominant belief in economics for the past few years. But recently, there's become more and more of a pushback to this. Uh, so you see this come through business schools, boardrooms, and now it's in every annual report. And people just go, even people who are being hurt by this, go around saying, well, that's what companies have to do. What was the argument for them around the 80s when they were arguing for maximizing shareholder value? The argument is that the only people who make an investment in the company without uh, taking a risk are shareholders. If you're a common shareholder, your dividend is not guaranteed. And so that is the argument. And they say everybody else gets a guaranteed yield on their contribution. In the case of workers, which is the most important one, I get paid my wage, so I'm taking no risk. But of course, there is a risk for workers and a lot of concern from workers over how much they do get paid. And Lasnik says the productivity of a company actually depends heavily on workers being happy and wanting to work there, not on how much shareholders invest. Now, why do most economists, including many progressive economists, buy into that argument? Because they don't understand wage determination. <laughs> but economists have a view of the market in general. I'm not just talking about the right-wing economists, but economists in general, that the market is just allocating resources here and there. If a worker loses a job here, they can get another job there. That's not the way things work. That's not how we get a strong middle class. That's not how we get good wages. And that's actually not how companies raise money. So you got to put organizations at the center of this argument and saying, how do organizations become productive? And once you make that argument, all the, these arguments about maximizing shareholder value uh, fall away. So from what Lasnik said, it's a combination of this focus on shareholders getting their money back and a basic lack of understanding of how the economy actually works, which explains why these buybacks are at an all-time high. That's really interesting, Sharice. I, I didn't even know that that whole philosophy of uh, increasing shareholder value can be traced back to an article. I just sort of thought that's what the publicly traded company was, was it exists to increase shareholder value. I didn't know that that was sort of like a, a recent belief system that was introduced by a specific article. Yeah, prior to the 1980s, this was actually illegal. And so the introduction of this new idea that, like, you should not only be doing it, but you should be doing it a lot and consistently is actually pretty new. It's almost like the tail that wags the dog because, like, if the pro-capitalism idea is that it's good for your shareholders to make a lot of money because that means the company is being productive and doing well and that's good for everybody. But if there's almost like a trick to increase the, the, the stock value without increasing value or benefits for anybody else, you've kind of, like, short-circuited the whole thing. And now you're just saying this is good because the shareholders are making money, not because that creates any good. Yeah, exactly. And something that Lazenik likes to talk about is how – 
if you do buybacks, the company spends money. But unless that shareholder decides to eventually sell the stock, that money just goes nowhere. It just sits there. So it's not, not actually getting used. Right. It's not trickling down. It's no. not being reinvested. It's it's just sitting there in the hope that, that they'll do more buybacks and it'll just get more and more. Yeah. And if they want to hold on to the stock forever, then they can do that and it'll benefit no one. Going back to the earlier point that I was making, grocery corporations have been spending billions on what is literally just elective spending. They're choosing to spend it on stock buybacks when they've been saying that they can't afford to pay workers this extra $2 an hour and at the same time when inflation is creating literal breadlines. But at the same time, I'm trying to be objective here and not just see these grocery stores, CEOs, these tech CEOs as the villains. So in order to sort of check my biases, I asked Jim one last time what he thought of all this. I do want to maybe play devil's advocate for a second. Is there any good reason for a company like this or any company to be increasing spending on their stock buybacks that maybe I'm not seeing or maybe I'm not understanding? Well, from the company's perspective or a financial investor's perspective, they think it's a great idea. You know, investors buy shares to try and make more money. And they aren't actually motivated by a mission of funding innovation and supporting economic growth. In reality, they do it to make more money. And there's no doubt that share buybacks from that perspective are a powerful and efficient thing to do. And so from the perspective of investors, this is a totally rational thing. The three supermarket chains in their most recent fiscal years spent a combined total of about two and a quarter billion dollars on share buybacks. So for less than half of what they've given their own shareholders, they could have paid every single worker, including the managers and the executives, an extra $2 an hour. Now, of course, $2 an hour to an executive is uh, SFA. But uh, for the actual workers on the shop floor and the cashiers what and is the SFA? warehouse people. <laughs> Sorry. Sweet fuck all. <laughs> I shouldn't use that term on radio. At any rate, the $2 an hour uh, wage benefit for people for getting through the pandemic would absolutely be affordable and they could still spend over a billion dollars a year on share buybacks. So all of this nonsense about how this was a recognition of the heroism of the grocery workers and then, you know, then the, the sudden and coordinated taking away of that $2 an hour bonus – uh, was uh, self-serving uh, on both uh, the beginning and the end of it. And then as soon as things calmed down enough or got routinized enough that they weren't worried about labor supply, then they took the $2 away. And uh, they did it in, again, three big chains control two-thirds of the industry, and they could all decide at the same time to cut pay $2 an hour. Uh, scandalous. But uh, again, it's just par for the course in this industry. And to drive home that point about Loblaws, Jim also says that he can debunk the idea that prices are higher just because of high food costs. And there's more. Jim also pointed out that according to Loblaws financial statements, it's clear to him that their costs were offset by significantly higher revenue. So number one, this claim that they're just passing on higher costs is not true. You could have grade six math and realize if all you did was paid more in costs and increased your own prices the same amount, your profits wouldn't change, okay? But their profits have more than doubled. Uh, secondly, you can see that the profit margin as a share of total revenue at the uh, food retail companies has also grown. 
So, you know, another PR line that you've heard from the CEOs is that, well, you know, it's just a margin. The margin is very small. We only collect a couple of cents on each dollar of food prices. So that hasn't really changed. In fact, the margin has changed. And both the company's own financial reports and the Statistics Canada data, which covers the whole industry, confirm the profit margin has swollen, uh, by my estimates, by about three quarters compared to before the pandemic. And those little bits of profit, you know, two cents or three cents or four cents on the dollar, depending on what you're buying, add up, add up big time uh, to billions and billions of dollars uh, of profits. You know, what really struck me from all this, Sharice, is that like, we're at this place where we're hearing angry rhetoric from policymakers against buybacks from everybody from Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders to Christia Freeland and Donald Trump. So it seems like there's like consensus that this is like really, really shitty. And yet one wonders like, I don't know, when all the politicians get really mad at the corporate sector, does that mean something happens? That's a really good question. I think so far we've seen that nothing has really happened. (laughs) I mean, it is interesting that Right at the same time that Biden announced the tax on buybacks just a few months later, Christopher Freeland did. And so it does seem like Canada and the U.S. are moving in a bit of a lockstep when it comes to this kind of policy. But just like Lasnik said, the 1%, the 2% tax isn't necessarily going to do very much. And there actually is a movement now for completely ending stock buybacks and making them illegal. Um, And it's a bit more of a radical fringe movement, but it does exist. People that are saying that, hey, let's end this entirely. That's your Canada land. We try to tell you things that you're not going to hear elsewhere. And if you value that, please support it. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows ad free, including early releases and bonus content. You will get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites, tickets to our live and virtual events. But the real reason why people support us is because they want to become a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. They want to keep our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read every email that you send. We're on Twitter at canadaland. Our website is canadaland.com. Today's episode was reported by Cherie Sutrin. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Additional production and editing from Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglese, and I am your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called syndications, handled by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode of Commons is brought to you in part by Canardian. What is Canardian, you ask? Well, it is a podcast that's gossiping about Canadian hometowns. Every episode, podcast producer and writer Katie Lauer is joined by various Canadian podcasting personalities to unravel the juicy stories about their hometowns from trusted sources like eyewitness testimony, community Facebook groups, subreddits, and Wikipedia. Nothing. 
nothing I say is fact-checked, but it is pretty dang entertaining. And you know who is a guest on this season of Canardian? Well, none other than yours truly. So if you are interested in the very important distinctions between Surrey and North Delta, if you want to learn whether or not I could outrun the Delta PD, well, this is the podcast for you. Listen and subscribe to Canardian from Pod the North right now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.